What's the game-changing realization that helped you build a high-performing team? That question is at the center of every episode of the HR Impact Show. Every HR professional wants to build a team that has empowered managers, engaged employees, and an organization that's striving to become elite. The challenge is that you're often told to do more with less. We're gonna fix that. Every week, we will feature executive and senior HR leaders from across the country, and they will share with us their actionable insights and best practices that can help empower you to create an engaged elite workforce. Here's the show. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Impact Show. This is your friendly neighborhood town strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. How do you create a leadership succession flywheel when you're a producing leader? Being a player coach is probably one of the toughest jobs that you can take on. Not only do you have end-to-end responsibility on the operations side of the business, but you're responsible for production too. It's easy to think that this is a recipe for disaster. Our featured guest today has pulled that off and has had a lot of success. He's executed the player coach role and at the same time has been instrumental in launching multiple markets in the staffing business. Joining us today is Scott Galanos. He's an SVP at Addison Group, an SIA top 100 staffing firm. He has deep roots in the staffing industry, having started as a recruiter and then climbing the ranks from there. He's held just about every role that you can think of during his time at Addison Group. And his staffing journey has been a pretty interesting journey to watch. And he's going to walk us through how you build an elite team while being a player coach. Scott, Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Happy to be here. And I'm excited to, to share my long journey through the staffing world and through the rise of Addison Group. I'm looking forward to this conversation, partly because I'm an ex-staffing guy, so I have a little bit of context there. <laughs> but I also have a lot of experience in doing what you did as uh, being a player coach in staffing. That's a really tough job to mm-hmm. do and it's a and it's an even tougher job to do well which you've proven out throughout your career. So, I know that we touched a little bit on your background in the bio that I gave, but I want you to get the listeners up to speed and share with them some of the things that you feel is important for them to know about your background. Yeah, happy to do. It, it starts from my first interview I had with my president at Addison Group and in this dream that I had to one day open up our Cleveland office, but Before I could do that, I had to be successful in multiple different roles, starting off as a recruiter in Chicago, working my way to a BDM, a senior BDM, and then getting the opportunity to open up our Denver office. What was unique about that experience was the company asked me where I wanted to go versus putting me in in New York or Boston, a place that wasn't high on my list, right? From there, I was able to flourish in the role in Denver promote individuals out of that office to open up some offices. And at one point I was over five markets and 25 FTE. It's really interesting that you talk about having a dream about opening the Cleveland market, but throughout your career, you've opened a number of different markets all across uh, the U.S. What did you learn from going through that process of opening all these different markets with different customer bases, different geographies? Each market had different challenges. The more tenured I got in my role, I would say the more I learned from failures, maybe in other markets. The consistent key, that piece that I had in moving from market to market 
was my team that I had around me, my, my leadership team at our headquarters in Chicago, full on support, and then being able to hire the right players around me that wanted to basically be in a startup backed by a larger entity, which was Addison Group. Without the, those people around me with the same common goal, we wouldn't have been successful. And that's really what I've learned. It's about the people that you surround yourself with. And then that's how you can take a startup office and make it successful. Your point about your success or failure is going to depend on the people that you surround yourself with. That's well, a common lesson across any sort of initiative. And especially in a startup environment, that becomes even more critical. So let's take a look and dig in a little bit deeper into your background. You've been at Addison for quite a while. You've experienced a man. lot. When you look at your entire trajectory, what's the accomplishment that, that you're most proud of during your time there? Coming up in June, I'm going to be hitting 12 years at Addison Group, and there's definitely a lot that I'm a proud of, but a few major accomplishments stick out. And the one that is probably top of my list is opening our Cleveland market. As I mentioned, I, uh, I, I had suggested that was a goal of mine in my interview. And sometimes it's met with a few laughs, right? Cleveland is deemed the mistake on the lake, but I was lucky enough to have a leader and a company that trusted me to open up a market. And so far, Cleveland has been one of our fastest starting offices at Addison Group. And that's something that I'm, I'm proud of. When you look at all the different branches that you've opened and you have opening Cleveland as a point of pride for you, did it become easier over time to open these branches since you've been there and done that? Or were each of those experiences baked in with its own set of challenges? Each office baked in with its own set of challenges. And if I'm being completely honest with myself and with you, Cleveland has been the most challenging at all of them, even with all the experience that I've had and having a solid team around me, Cleveland has been the most challenging and a few different variables. The market, the market was high in 21, 22, they flatlined a little bit in 23, but we don't have a very big presence in the Midwest aside from Chicago, Addison Group. Our major metropolitan cities in the area, we have Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, Columbus, Cincinnati. There's no Addison Group presence in those. So we're really starting from the ground up in Cleveland. And over the next couple of years, we hopefully we add on some of our other verticals, but definitely Cleveland has its own challenges. And but we're working through it as a team. And like I said, one of our fastest growing startups in, in Addison Group history. So 2024 should be a big year for us. When you look at all the things that you've accomplished in your 12 years at Addison, and now you have the startup branch in Cleveland that's open, what's a moonshot goal that you have in front of you that you want to knock out in 2024 or 2020? I just listed off a few major cities that are within a two to three hour drive of Cleveland. Well, it's something that would be a moonshot goal uh, for 2024 and going into maybe 2025 would be to have some sort of presence. I think we can piggyback off of our current business that we have in Cleveland. And my job is to help hire, train, and groom that next person to open up one of those offices. And that's the moonshot goal. Definitely attainable but we have to get the right players in place. The other thing that I'm curious about, and you might have an interesting perspective on this, having been in staffing for as long as you have. So you deal with the agency side of the business, and then you also deal with the client side of the business. When you think about all the different leadership and HR myths that you've run across, what's the one myth that you wish would just go away? Yeah, that's a question I've been thinking about for uh, a couple of days. And 
I think I keep landing on the same one. It's you don't have to be in a leadership role to be a leader. I think that individuals believe they can only be a leader if they have a, a certain title. And I think that's a myth that should be debunked because there's a lot of leadership qualities that individuals have that can show leadership without having a title. And, and, and they don't even have to have the tenure to show those leadership qualities. It's little things going above and beyond, showing up with a good attitude, energy, putting forth the effort. This new generation that's coming in has those qualities and those are the leaders that, that we need in our company without the title. I have a couple of questions on, on that front. So one, what was it that triggered that realization for you? Like leadership isn't defined by a title. It's just defined by the things that you do independent of title. And the other thing that I'm wondering is what role does that thought process play in how you develop or identify and develop future leaders within your organization? It comes from being at my company for 11, 12 years and being able to see be in non-leadership roles and being able to have some of those individuals as my mentors and allowing me to take bits and pieces from their background and kind of shape it into my position I'm in now. I've always tried to lead by example in my role. And those are little things as in having a good attitude, being on time, putting forth extra effort. And so as I hire and as we go through our interview process, we try to, or I try to vet out those certain qualities because I believe those are the individuals that can open up a new office in 2024 or 2025. I opened the show by asking the question, how do you create a leadership succession flywheel? And we've danced around the edges of that process in what we've covered so far. But the broader conversation is not just about creating that succession flywheel, but it's doing it while you're responsible for production as well. So how does that tie in with your experience and what have you figured out in your time as a leader that's helped you do both of those things really well? Yeah, I don't know if I have it figured out, but it's, it's, an, it's an ever evolving process, right? I think something that worked maybe last week or last month or last year isn't working maybe today or tomorrow or two weeks from now. So a couple of things. When I was first a leader within Addison Group, I really didn't understand how or why I was interviewing a certain individual. Through my tenure and through the resources and tools we have been given as leaders at Addison Group, I've been able to hone in on certain interview techniques that allow us to identify those right people that may be the next leader in our company. Whether they have a leadership title or not, I want to hire leaders that can lead by example. A lot of it's trial and error. A lot of it learning from your mistakes. A lot of it is self and being aware that you did make a mistake and you need to learn from it. And those are all things that I've had to do and learn throughout my career to, to put me in the position I'm, I am in today. But also it's not foolproof. It's not perfect. I'm, I'm forever learning. I'm forever changing and evolving as well. And I think that's what's great about being being a leader or being in a leadership position is that you can always learn, you can always grow. So one of the things that caught my attention about what you just mentioned was that you're interviewing for leadership competencies early on, even if the position that you're hiring for isn't a leadership role. So why is that important in your ability to build leadership depth 
as you are building a team around you, and I look at it from maybe a sports perspective, you need bench players, you need bench strength, you need people that are maybe utility players that can do a little bit of everything. You need your all-stars. And so as I'm building out, let's say, for example, the topic is Cleveland, I'm looking at people that can lead by example, can can take on some extra work, can be held accountable, wants to grow, wants to learn, wants to make mistakes to learn. Because as we're growing this market or growing this team, it allows me to help them along and learn from some of the different markets that I've opened and being able to pass that information down. Okay. If I'm understanding what you're describing correctly, the profile that you hire for in a startup organization has to have certain attributes that lend itself for that sort of organization. So share with us a little bit about some of the attributes or characteristics that you look for and that you're interviewing for that point to a higher chance of success in a startup environment. Personally, when I'm going through my interview process in a startup environment, I'm looking for individuals that are self-starters. We're in a startup environment already. We may not have any business and we have to have individuals that are self-starters that can come in highly motivated, energy, good attitude, because there may not be any business to work on that day. We have to go out and find it. Individuals that can hold themselves accountable, that want more responsibility. And I think that takes a lot of pressure off of leadership in a startup office, knowing that they've hired these individuals that have certain leadership qualities, like the ones I just mentioned, where they can start to grow um, a succession plan underneath of them. I like that you called out individuals who are self-starters. What that means to me when I recruit for that profile is that you want people that are able to figure stuff out and figure stuff out fast. How does that help you as a player coach, as a producing leader, when it comes to your job? The, The challenge in my position is being able to go out and get business while overseeing individuals within my team. So I I like to structure my day where I have certain hours that I'm only focused on new business development or client management. During that time, I have these self-starters that ultimately have to go and find an answer on their own. And I'd rather have them operate in the ask for forgiveness than permission mode because it allows them to grow and figure out that they can complete tasks on their own without needing to lean on me for the green light. So that does free up a lot of my time when I do make a hire that possesses those characteristics. I know that they're going to hold themselves accountable to get the task done. Wow. It's been a great conversation so far. Make sure you join the HR Impact community where we gather a community of HR leaders just like you. This is a space where top people leaders share actionable insights and practical playbooks. Sign up today as a member for the community. Get updates on the latest HR resources and exclusive event invites. You can join the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. And now back to the show. We're taking the HR Impact Show on the road. As a loyal listener to the HR Impact Show, we'd like to invite you to join us live at the 2024 Transform Conference at the Wynn Resort in Las Vegas from March 11th through the 13th. Transform brings together people-driven leaders, investors, and innovators across 
industries, and backgrounds with a shared passion for people, innovation, and transforming the world of work. The 2024 Transform Conference is going to be the best yet. Here's what you can expect. Innovative showcases, probing conversations, hands-on learning experiences, 300-plus speakers, and more. Join us and let's shape the future world of work together. What you're describing is a candidate or an individual that doesn't need a whole lot of hand-holding. And I want to wind that back to how do you recruit for that or how do you interview for that? What are the things that you're asking during the interview process? that gives you a signal that this person is somebody that can figure stuff out on their own. If there's situational questions, you can be asking an individual about task completion and uh, delegation, where on the fly, if they're able to answer certain questions, that these people might be the ones that possess those self-starter type of characteristics that I personally look for. I'm going to actually dig in a little bit deeper and you're going to, you're going to give away some of your secrets. I'm a startup guy and I interview for people that can figure that out. One of the things that I usually ask in an interview setting, it's not job related, but I'm vetting for intellectual curiosity, which is the figure out capability that I'm looking for. So one of the things that I'll always ask in an interview is tell me about the last thing that you learned. Mm -hmm. And I'll just stay quiet after that and see where that candidate takes me because what it tells me is that if you're not constantly like tinkering with things, you don't really have the right mentality within a startup context to figure stuff out. So mm -hmm. for those that are listening, you can go with Scott's sort of hidden secret answer, but I think he and I are talking about the same thing. We yeah. want to be able to figure out whether the candidate across from us is actually able to just take a concept and build something out of it. One of the things that's important about that figure it out question from a behavioral question perspective is you've got to be able to evaluate whether the person has the intellectual curiosity in them that they're constantly learning. And your, your top tier candidate, they're going to have a list of things that they're talking about that they've figured out on the fly. And you really get a sense for the way their mind works and how it can be applied in your environment. There's something about having an interview with someone and they're able to give you multiple examples in multiple different areas off the top of their head. A lot of what we do with sales is thinking on your feet. And if I'm able to have an interview that's more like a conversation where someone can give me examples that, you know, are aligned with the characteristics I'm looking for, I think that tells me a lot about what I need to know about making a hire. We've mapped out a little bit about how you pull off being a player coach successfully, how that shows up and how you recruit for, for employees on your team, what that makeup needs to look like. So that stuff is all really solid. And really the big thing that I take away from what we've talked about so far is that if you're that player coach within that organization, you as the leader need to be really tuned in on the prioritization component and how you can prioritize your day between your clients, your people, and your mm -hmm. operational requirements. So that stuff is really good. So when you think about all the things that go into that, what are some of the big mistakes or roadblocks that you encountered that you want to get on the radar of somebody that's listening to this conversation and is yeah. in that player coach role that's going to help them be more effective in being that high functioning player coach. I think a few things I've learned along the way jump out at me right away. One is that there shouldn't be a blanket in approach 
to any one person or team or, or market. Everyone's going to need something different. And through trial and error, I, I found that out that my, my style with employee A may need to be vastly different to employee B. One of the other things that, one of the other things that, you know, I, I've always tried to instill is inspect what you expect without micromanaging your team, right? You want to give your team the leeway to complete tasks and to get their work done, which in turn allows me to do the other part of my job, which is selling client business development, but making sure when you're delegating that you're inspecting that it's complete and helping the team grow. Part of what I have in my, I guess, my schedule is, is office hours or consistent one-on-ones. And that allows me to have a cadence with my team on a regular basis to perform some of these tasks to make sure that they are, you know, hitting activity or completing tasks or doing the right follow-up. I'm very neurotic with my schedule. And I think it says something about my organization. And, and one thing I try not to do is move around my team's meetings. I, I feel as if my team has something on their calendar with me that I try to keep it in that time slot because I'm trying to respect their schedule as well. So there's a lot there that I think is worth highlighting. But one of the things that you mentioned is the your point about inspect what you expect. The way that resonates to me is that you're leading to outcomes versus leading to activities. So there's a desired outcome that you're looking to get. Hey, we want to have X number of meetings. And out of those meetings, we want to have Y number of this other outcome that we want to deliver. Now you right. go and do it. Uh, I think that's important because if you're focused too far on the task level stuff, you can't accomplish what you talked about, which is building a blanket approach. There's no blanket approach to any of these different markets. So if you're measuring the wrong things or paying attention to the wrong things, you end up actually being too involved in areas that you don't need to be involved. So I think that's an important yeah. highlight to pull out. The other thing that I like about what you mentioned, your point about doing consistent one-on-ones, and I want you to expand on that a little bit. Why is that a critical piece of building this high-performance organization where you're the player coach? My one-on-ones or my meetings with my team have always evolved, but what I've learned is keep the meeting consistent and make sure you keep what you're going over consistent. Have a cadence where your team is bringing you XYZ to the meeting and then you're bringing XYZ to the meeting and you can continuously build off of those topics. Personally, I found that every meeting is going to have a different cadence and it, it's really tough to build week to week on accomplishing that goal. So going back to your, you mentioned about managing the outcomes, you can, I can always manage backwards and figure out how they reach those outcomes, but it's difficult if that meeting is always changing or that target is always moving. That's a good point. One other thing that I'd like you to highlight when it comes to one-on-ones and I'll call it maintaining momentum, are you threading all the different deliverables from week to week? I use Microsoft OneNote and for, for the longest time, I always use a notepad for all my notes with my team. But I found that once I turn a page in the notepad, I rarely go back to read those notes. What's nice about the OneNote feature is I have a tab for every single market. In those tabs, I have a tab for every single person on my team. 
and I can timestamp every one of our meetings. So I never forget on a week to week basis what we have covered. So I can continuously inspect what I expect and build off of that meeting. One of the other things in my meetings, I, I rarely discuss activity with my team. I know that's in a sales organization that is maybe taboo to hear, but my team knows what their activity should be. And if we're spending our half hour or 45 minutes just discussing numbers, we're wasting precious time on strategy and how we get to those numbers. So yes, maybe a few minutes we're discussing what numbers were the week prior or the two weeks prior, but most of my meetings are going to be around strategy and how I can help them succeed. I don't want to downplay what you just said. I think what you're describing in terms of what should a one-on-one -on -one consist of in terms of what you're talking about, I absolutely agree with you that it's not the place or the time to talk about activity metrics. Activity mm -hmm. conversations and status updates on different projects that might be going on are table stakes. It should be a completely different conversation one-on-ones, sure. when you're thinking about leadership best practices and building high-performance teams, one-on-ones are the time where you're developing that strategy, you're identifying yeah. roadblocks, you're really get, digging deep into one or two key deliverables that need to be met over the course of the next week or month or whatever. But if you're right. sucking up a lot of that time to talk about numbers, you should have some sort of infrastructure in place, be it a CRM or something else that gives you those granular metrics. You know, yeah. you're taking your one-on-one -on -one time to talk about stuff that you can, you can, you can look at a dashboard. It's really a waste of time. You're turning that meeting, you're, you're turning that time that you have with the people on your team into something that could have been accomplished over email. So I, I want to highlight that because I think a lot of leaders get that wrong. And instead yeah. of talking about the things that are impactful, there's a lot of ground that we've covered up until this point. I think what I'd like you to do is there are listeners in the audience that probably fall into that player coach role, and they might be in a situation where they're not doing it well. So if they want to get started on the process of being an effective player coach, building that, that succession planning flywheel, building their bench strength and doing this player coach role really well, what are the handful of things that they need to be focused on that's going to set them off on the right path? It goes back to something I, I mentioned earlier is I'm still learning and I'm still self-aware that I'm not perfect and that I can improve personally and professionally. This position is, it's tough. Getting here is challenging and not just a nine to five. It's just not a 40 hour a week position. There's networking opportunities that you can attend extra reading books, articles, having conversations with mentors, having tough conversations with mentors. But I think it's about having the support of a leader of your own and having a group of mentors and having a roadmap, figuring out how you can be successful within your roadmap. And I've been lucky enough to have the support of a leader at Addison Group and a company that backed my roadmap. And that's what's allowed me to build successful teams and ultimately open one of my most, most accomplishments that I'm proud of. And, and that's the Ohio office. If people want to continue the conversation, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you and, and get a hold of you? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. You can connect with me on LinkedIn and shoot me a message. My, my email also is scott.galanos at addisongroup.com. 
I'm always open to networking and to having conversations and to, to giving back. I've been lucky enough to have mentors take me under their wing and guide me through this crazy career I've had. And part of what I want to do in my next chapter is to give back and totally open to having those conversations. Really good stuff, Scott. I appreciate you hanging out with us and sharing your insights and, and what you've learned over the last 12 years or so in building multiple markets in Addison Group as a player coach. When I think about the stuff that you talked about, there's a handful of things that I want to call out that's going to be critically important for those listeners to pay attention to. So if you're looking at doing what Scott did and you want to replicate that, one of the most important things that you need to focus on is how you hire. There are a couple of big themes that you need to focus on. One is the ability of that candidate that's sitting across from you to be a self-starter. So you need to vet out for intellectual curiosity and their ability to figure things out and iterate on the fly. So that's going to be critical. The other thing that stands out in the conversation is that from a mindset perspective as a leader and especially a player coach where you have a, an emphasis on being able to delegate and prioritize, you need to be extremely outcomes focused. You can't get mired in the tactical granular detail. You need to be able to point out the big picture and a rough framework of how to get there and then rely on your people to go ahead and execute that. That's going to be critically important. The third thing that stands out about the conversation is that it's critical for you to be in the custom solution mindset. You can't cookie cutter your way to success in a startup environment. Each market's going to be different. Each group of, of people that you hire is going to be different. So if you're trying to systematize this and cookie cutter this, you're going to fail. So you need to be aware of that as well. And then the last thing that I think is an underrated element is keeping your one-on-ones, being disciplined about keeping your one-on-ones. And then when you have your one-on-ones, have it be strategic in nature versus extremely tactical, because the more granular you get in those conversations, the less likely it is that you're going to be painting the roadmap or at least pointing to the roadmap that's going to lead to success. So really great stuff, Scott. I appreciate you uh, sharing all of that stuff. For those of you who have been listening to the conversation, let us know what you thought of it. Leave us a review. And if you want more conversations like this, make sure you are joining the HR Impact community. You can find that at engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another great leader sharing with us the game-changing realizations that they had that helped them build a high-performing team. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Impact Show. We hope you liked the conversation. Don't forget to continue supporting us by joining the HR Impact community. You can find the community at www.engagerocket.co slash HR Impact. Tune in next time where we'll have another guest who's going to share with us the game-changing insights that help them build high-performing teams.